Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner, and a little later on in today's programme we're going to be joined by former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. But first and foremost I'm delighted to be joined by Pippa Good, the owner and manager of the Delhi Social, a Delhi coffee shop and social hub based in Boldmere, Sutton Coldfield, Birmingham. Pippa, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Oh, thank you for asking me. It's a real pleasure having you join us, Pippa. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish your take on leadership first and foremost. But given that today's generation of leaders is going through probably one of the biggest tests of our time, it would be remiss of me not to ask just how it's been for you and your business navigating the COVID-19 situation over the last few months. Uh, Well, we're not going to lie. It's been an immense challenge, obviously. Um, We have developed the business over nine years and it started off as a deli shop with a few coffee tables, but it's now more of a Barkham cafe. So obviously when lockdown came, we actually had to close the whole business. Um, But because we'd had previous experience, we were fortunate we had a can-do attitude and thought, right, let's go back to basics, go back to the deli shop. And we became an essential shop within a couple of days, which um, served the local community and actually thrived over the the last three months. That's certainly encouraging uh, to hear, uh, Pippa, for sure, that you've been sort of classified as um, a an essential business and you've been able to continue to um, operate. Um, Exactly. During this period, we have been looking to try and find a silver lining on the programme this week to what's been enormously dark and dense cloud over all of us. So in in terms of your experience managing through this crisis, would you say there's anything positive that you can take from this, maybe something that you've learned from the experience? Oh, goodness. I think there's everything. Everybody's learned something through this experience. Yes, we um, have obviously had to be adaptable. I think that's one of the key things that we've all had to learn and and to a certain extent um, use some risk management with it as well in that you don't know how things are going to pan out. So you just have to trust your gut instinct and try some different things. We actually had um, a mothballed a, a website a couple of years ago, um, an online shop. So we unmothballed it fairly quickly, and now we have a full-service online shop. Um, My sons have come into the business. Unfortunately, they're very tech-savvy. So we actually have a new online business, which is a new wing that we would have never imagined doing. Um, Other things that we've been doing are um, trying to adapt. Obviously, the the crisis moved along. So initially, it was just um, only a few people coming in the shop, and we were delivering. Um, to the community but as things have changed we've had to open the cafe and that's brought new challenges because we had to include the social distancing issues Um, so we decided because the shop is small that we could only use outside spaces so we actually have a large um, beer garden and so we set up tables and increase the capacity there. Mm, And Good leadership during a crisis is, of course, incredibly important, isn't it? And we've seen that over the course of the last few months. But what do you generally think, Pippa, that the role of a leader actually is? 
Um, well, I heard somebody say that never let a good crisis go to waste. So I think as a leader, you've got to try and think on your feet and show leadership. Um, there's obviously the day-to-day leading of management, and we had to furlough staff, and there was all the um, difficulties of trying to organise that. But as a leader, you also have to try and think of the future. So you have to try and look ahead and see what's coming up over the horizon, which, as you can imagine, is quite difficult at the moment. But I've had a chance, I think. I think everybody's had a chance to have a sort of reset button and have a chance to think and to read and to imagine where you want to go to and then think how we're going to get there. So it's been an opportunity, I think, for many of us to think about our businesses in a more um, constructive way than we probably usually have time for. So I've been thinking, and we applied for um, the government um, bounce-back loan, which we were successful with. So looking forward, we're actually going to sort of um, develop the cafe business immensely and double the floor space by um, uh, expanding the upstairs area. And during a crisis as well, people often look to their business leaders for that little bit of direction and inspiration and just that reassurance that things are going to be okay and that there are plans and procedures in place. But I suppose that when you're the one sort of safeguarding the mental health and well-being of everybody else, you're the leader at the top of the tree, it can almost feel quite a lonely place having to be as selfless as that. So when you are in your position and there is nobody really above you to refer to, Pippa, when you do need that little bit of inspiration for yourself, where do you tend to draw that from? Um, Well, I'm fortunate in that my two sons have come into the business and so I think I would have found it extremely lonely, lonely as a leader just to be on my own, but having them to um, come up with ideas and to think through all the new agendas coming over the horizon. So, for instance, we've got this um, Eat Out to Help Out coming Mm. in next week, but, you know, there's applications for that. There's also how we're going to manage the um, face mask um, issue. So there's all things to consider all the time. And it's been, to be quite honest, quite mentally exhausting keeping up with it. Um, But we, you know, we remain positive and we keep going with it. And speaking of sort of mentally exhausting, just how important Mm. is safeguarding mental health in leadership, both in terms of looking after your own and also that of those around you? Oh, I think that's immensely important. It's been... um, to be quite honest, a real privilege to be here in the lockdown period. We are kind of the hub of the local community. I think local centres have done, um, have held up particularly well rather than city centres. People have felt safer coming to small high streets rather than large supermarkets. And so I have had a, a lot of verbal conversations with people about how they're feeling and how um, vulnerable they felt. I've got an elderly mother on my on her own for many months as well. So, you know, it's been a privilege to hear people um, opening up and just sharing how vulnerable they feel and just to try and support each other. And thinking of 
the fact that you've already mentioned, of course, adhering to certain safety guidelines and you're weighing up just how you're going to implement that over the next mm-hmm. uh, few weeks. Just how clear do you think that sort of the government's guidance has been during this period um, throughout the pandemic in terms of operating safely and continuing to do so? Just because there has been a lot of debate about that. Yeah, I mean, and I and I listen to a lot of what the media says, and uh, I think, to be honest, in the early days, I think the the government nailed the support for for small business. We were in receipt of a, a grant, which was a made us able to pay the rent in the first few months, and the staff furlough scheme. I think was absolutely excellent. Um, I'm con- just very concerned on the macro level for business. You know, it's terrifying what we're the next few months are going to hold. But um, government-wise, I just think it's a, it's a bit of a poison chalice for them, to be quite honest, and I'm not laying into them too much because I just think it's such a difficult thing to navigate our way through that I'm not too harsh on them, to be fair. Mm, it is a challenge um, that is wholly unprecedented. You're absolutely mm. right in saying that. And it is clear as well that over the course of the next uh, few months, we are going to have to adjust to a new normal of both living and working. And if yeah. we address that, uh, Pippa, just before we do wrap things up on the programme today, mm-hmm. I'm interested to understand what you feel is on the horizon during that time for you and for the Delhi Social as a business and what you're really hoping to achieve over the next year. Yes, yeah, so I, I agree. I think that that phrase the new normal will be um, something that we'll go all have to adapt to I don't think um, society will ever be the same again and so it's a question of making that adapt adapting to it and working with it but I think remaining positive in our mindset is absolutely crucial and we're absolutely looking forward to the next 12 months we're really excited about the changes that we've made to the business I think online shopping will just increase. I think that's been a big change. And we're also fortunate here local in our local centre in a lot of people work from home. And I believe that that will be a long-term strategy for businesses, whether they work part-time at home and go into an office for a few days a week. But I think um, the local high street will benefit from that, and we as a business will if we can set up um, home um, sort of hub working in our cafe, I think people get very lonely all the time at home. So I think we're looking at that as a potential source of new business for us. Let's certainly hope there'll be some positive news to share on that front, Pippa, for sure. Um, We are just about out of time on today's programme, unfortunately, but given just how informative and how much of a pleasure it's been having you join us today, I actually think it would be wonderful to have you back on the show in future over the course of the next few months, just to assess how things are getting on at that point in time and where we're at at that moment in time as well. Oh, well, thank you very much. I'd uh, be interested in doing that too. None of us know where we'll be, do we? Exactly right. It's only a matter of speculation at the moment. We certainly can't be too sure. And there are a great many variables in this still, of course. Um, Most importantly, though, until we do hopefully speak again in future, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on, because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. That is for sure. All right. Well, thank you very much. And to you too. 
And for those tuning in today and listening, please do continue to be sensible with the lifting of lockdown restrictions and adhere to the rules. Look after yourselves and others because it does make a real difference in saving lives. I was speaking today to Pippa Good, owner and manager of the Delhi Social in Boldmere. Coming up next on today's programme, I'm going to be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew has taken up the position of director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. However, during his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. And I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning 
from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Giles, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately
But uh, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that. You know, that, that wasn't a moment, that was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfill that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed... And this applies, again, to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team. Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So... You know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team... Um, being looked up to, what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? J 
just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about 
the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup. I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I... Yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. And so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018... Uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary numbers. Yeah, I mean, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we're, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got 
a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves i can feel your enthusiasm for it as a as an essex fan i i'm still stumped as to i think i'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the oval or a team based at lords I, I'll, I'll get over that but i'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it surely it's gonna be the lords one right that's uh, of course yeah. <laughs> um sanju it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today thank you very much cheers this has been the leaders council podcast thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us I've been your host, Scott Challoner, 
Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.